0: This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Again, let me welcome you uh, to City Church. Glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us this morning, potentially for the baptism, or you're just here for the first time, uh, we're in the middle of a long series on the Gospel of Mark. We're basically going through word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, section by section, just covering this, the Gospel of Mark. Mark? Mark? Just so you know, if you're new to the Bible, is the first gospel written. Uh, the gospels uh, are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're at the beginning of the New Testament in your Bible. And the gospels are the stories uh, recorded to the gospel writers by eyewitnesses who watched Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And so Mark is the first gospeler, the first one to capture the eyewitness account, primarily of Peter, uh, because the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus both in his life, ministry, death, and his resurrection, those folks who witnessed him were beginning to uh, die off. they were beginning to die physically. And so Mark was motivated to capture this incredible good news and put it into the form of a gospel by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, this is what Mark was up to in writing his book. Uh, We are uh, talking through the gospel of Mark because we're trying to understand who the real Jesus is. It's very popular in our day and age to just kind of make up the Jesus that you want for yourself or take one or two verses or one or two things that he said and just sort of build a Jesus around about 1% of who he actually was, who he actually is. And so we're going through the entire gospel to make sure we hit all of his life and teaching, But not only that, um, we're going through, uh, because it's just good for us to learn how to read through the Bible together. It's just good for us to learn the discipline of reading uh, daily, weekly, monthly, and annually. And so this is the section that we're in in our series on the Gospel of Mark. We're in the last section, chapters 11 through 16, uh, tell of the last week of Jesus's life. And so while Mark went incredibly fast from chapter one through uh, the middle of chapter 11, he is now slowing down and he's going in detail through Jesus' last week and in particular we're in chapters 11 and 12 and in chapters 11 and 12 if you recall Jesus entered into the temple he condemned it he cursed it he cleansed it ever since that day the monday of holy week the monday of the passion week Um, Ever since that time, the Sanhedrin decided, those who were the authorities in the temple, decided they had to be rid of Jesus, that he was messing with their life. He was messing with their existence. He was taking power and control from them, two massive idols that they worshipped and they lived by. And so when Jesus came back in the temple on Tuesday, the Sanhedrin themselves, the most powerful men in the temple, the Sanhedrin themselves came up to Jesus and they questioned him about his authority. When Jesus was not, um, when he was not scared by them, when he was not pushed away by them. In fact, when he won in that argument, the Sanhedrin began to send wave after wave of attack on Jesus, trying to discredit him. It says at the end, uh, ch- at the beginning of, of chapter 12, at the end of that time with the Sanhedrin that they decided that they had to, they had to destroy him. They had to be utterly done with him. And so the Sanhedrin first sent uh, the Herodians and the Pharisees, this is the first wave of attack to discredit him so that the crowds would not be so wild about him so that they could, in fact, arrest him, be done with him, put him out of their misery, and in so doing, not lose the crowd's approval. Well, the Pharisees and the Herodians try and trap him with a political trap about taxes. It doesn't work. So then they send the Sadducees to try and uh, impale Jesus or make him look ridiculous on a theological question about the resurrection or the afterlife. Um, that time when we will move into the new heavens and the new earth. And that didn't work either. Jesus was like, you don't know the power of God and you don't know the scriptures and that's what's wrong with you. We looked at that last week. This week we have the last question. A scribe, uh, it says literally not come up to Jesus in verse 28, it says a scribe came to Jesus and evidently we'd have to assume, in fact, it says in Matthew and Luke that he came to trap him. We'd have to assume that he was sent once again by the Sanhedrin, and he's coming to talk to Jesus about a legal question, a question of the law, a question about their Torah, about the Pentateuch, the laws that God gave Moses back in uh, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, in that section. So I'll explain more about that in a second. But as we, as we walk through today's text, I wanna go over the last and first question. I wanna go through point two, the profound simplicity talking about Jesus' response and then I want to look at the incredible interaction between Jesus and the scribe, um, being called uh, much more and at the same time, not far. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give me words. I ask that you would preach into my heart and through my heart to my friends. I just ask for, um, for your truth to be explained and understood and for it to impact, change, and save us. We uh, pray that I would diminish this morning, that you would increase We pray that I would become empty of myself and my sin, and even to a certain extent, my finitude, and that you would become adequate enough and sufficient in me. Lord, I pray for my friends that you would teach them and me. In your name we pray. Amen. So the last and the first question, looking at verse 28 and 34b. First of all, this is the last question. In the wave of conflict, in, in the continuing uh, animosity from the Sanhedrin towards Jesus as they're sending all of these folks to Jesus to trap him, we see 34b reads this. And after that, talking about the four rounds of questions, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the last one. They've been outmatched. But we'll find next week that Jesus decides he's got some questions he wants to ask. And so the conflict will not be over even next week. But this is the first question. The reason I use the word the first question is because when the scribe comes up to Jesus, he says, which commandment is the most important of all? He literally asks, which is the foremost commandment? Which is the chief commandment? It could be understood and rightfully so. Which is the first commandment? So you got to know who the scribes are to understand what's going on in this question. The scribes started out in the Old Testament as those who would take the Old Testament scriptures and word by word, letter by letter, write down and copy and translate and scribe the Old Testament scriptures so they would have another copy. So that the word of God would not become extinct and also so that the word of God could be duplicated and sent out into various places. And so the scribes started out in their Old Testament history just as ones that would write and copy and, and, and basically uh, word for word go through the Old Testament law and make sure that there were multiple copies available. They would pride themselves in their understanding of the law or more accurately just their knowledge of the law. They could, they could tell you, for example, how many numbers of verses were in Any and every chapter of their Bible. They could tell you the number of letters in every chapter of their Bible. They could tell you the middle word and the middle letter in any chapter in the scriptures that they would scribe. And as you might imagine, through this repetition, they eventually became incredibly proficient at the law. They became, over time, not just those who would copy the law, but those who knew it better than anyone else. And so they became professors. In fact, in this um, text in Matthew and Luke, uh, Matthew and Luke decided to call this man a lawyer and not a scribe. Because by this point, he had become a professor of the law. He could tell you just about everything you needed to know about the Old Testament law. And so not only could he be a professor for you and help you understand the law, if you, if you had conflict with someone else over what the law said and what needed to be done, you would go to a scribe and they would become a lawyer and a judge all at the same time. And they would discern for you who was in the right and who was in the wrong based on the evidence. And whatever they said was binding. Whatever ruling they came down with was binding. So they had unbelievable power in the nation of Israel. This is the scribal tradition. Just so you know, if you look in the Old Testament, there are 613 individual statutes in the law. 613 individual laws, individual injunctions. There are 365 negatives, things you don't do. And there's 248 positive things that you're supposed to do. And so when the scribes would come up to a common man or woman who didn't have time to copy it down, who maybe couldn't even read, who maybe hadn't even heard all of it, they would frequently try and summarize all 613 of these laws. And they would try and give someone a commoner, let's say, an understanding of the law so that they could simplify it some. It was pretty common to ask a rabbi or a scribe, to declare what they believed to be the weightiest of all the commandments. It was pretty normal for a scribe or a rabbi to say, how would you summarize the Torah in a nutshell? And so they would try and come up with one or two sentences that would explain the 613 laws so that someone could go from there and start at what is most important and work their way down from there. So in, their, in, their, in their, their desire, let's say, uh, to make God's law more understandable and easier to transmit among people who couldn't read and didn't have the law themselves, they began to differentiate between heavy laws and light laws. They began to differentiate between great laws, the laws that are the greatest, and those that are the least— And so when in your mind you could not begin to understand which law do I follow because they seem to contradict one another, and I can't figure out which one's more important than the other, and if I do A, I might violate B, they would say, well, look it up in the order of the 613 and do the most important one. And so uh, this all flowed out of an idea where where a famous rabbi, a very famous rabbi, was told by a skeptic who was mocking him. He was mocking his 613 laws, and the skeptic said, I'll convert to Judaism— If you'll teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. And so the very famous rabbi said, what you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. And then listen to this, this is the really important part. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. So the way Jesus talks about this in Matthew's account, he says, listen, loving God and loving neighbor All of the law and the prophets depend on these two commands or they hang on these two commands. If you start here at the very first and go from there, you'll have a really good start. Jesus himself actually assumed this practice of the scribes in Matthew 5. Listen carefully. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he moves on and says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness Exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's the logic and the flow. The scribe, as you recall, has been sent by the Sanhedrin to go and try and trip Jesus up, to test him, to see what he might say is the most important commandment. He walks up, and our text tells us that he heard them, being the Sadducees and Jesus, disputing with one another. Remember last week, they're arguing over resurrection. They're arguing over the afterlife. They're arguing over the new heavens and the new earth and whether it even existed. And so he watches Jesus, and I think somewhere in watching Jesus interact with the Sadducees, his heart motive began to change. Because he saw that he answered him well or literally beautifully. And so he asked him, I think, of his own accord, with true motive and true desire to understand which commandment is the most important. Of all. And this is really important. This is really important because you see, the scribes would teach the law, the 613 of them. One of the reasons that they wanted to organize them and go from least or from greatest to least and heaviest to lightest was because the scribes and the Pharisees clearly taught that if we will obey the law well, the kingdom of God will come. If we can sufficiently and adequately obey the law of God, then the Messiah will come. And heaven will come, and we'll be able to enter into it when they judge. And so, for the scribe, it is a matter of life and death. It's up to his obedience and the obedience of the nation for them to enter into this eternal life that Jesus has just talked about. So, Jesus has just told the Sadducees listen, there is going to be an amazing afterlife with no death, no sin, no sadness. No nature turning on nature, no nature turning on humanity, no humanity turning on humanity, no humanity turning on itself. And and not only that, it's going to blow away the categories of your mind. That your concept of marriage and getting married now is so much like a caterpillar compared to a butterfly of what you will experience in heaven. It's just going to be amazing. And the scribe says, tell me which is the greatest commandment because I want to be there. So that's the last question of the Sanhedrin who are trying to put Jesus out of their misery. It's the first question for the scribe. In other words, it's the chief question. It's how do we organize the Torah? How do we obey it? How do we earn this resurrection? So let's look at 29 through, 30, through 31, the profound simplicity of what Jesus says. Jesus answered, the most important is this. First, let's just stop and realize that he confirms their language and their premise. He doesn't say, dumb question. He doesn't say, rules, schmools. He doesn't say, don't be a legalist. He doesn't say, I'm not going to clarify for you. He doesn't say, oh man, how narrow of you to think that there's, there's one rule that's binding on all humanity. There are all kinds of ways. There are all kinds of rituals. You just need to find the one for you. But Jesus starts with a very clear premise. A very clear premise. Do you see it? The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is his premise. There is a God. There's one God. He has no parallels. He is not in a pantheon. He is not in a competition. He's clearly the creator of the universe. But not only that, not only is he one God, he is our God. He has entered into covenant with us, his people. And so he is unique in being the one God, and he is relational, and he is our God. And then he says this, quoting Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 6, verses 4 and 5, what is known as the Shema. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, And with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, he affirms their premise. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. And then in the second, in verse 31, he also quotes Leviticus 19. So we'll take them separately. If you just want a very simple answer to what the scribe said, how do I earn eternal life? Jesus says, take your 613 and boil them down to this, love. In a word, love. In a couple of words, love God and love neighbor. In a few more words, love God supremely and love neighbor equally. So first, love God supremely. It doesn't just say love him with all your heart. It actually says love him from all the heart of you. Love him from all the soul of you. Love him from all the mind of you. Love him from all the strength of you. Everything that you are in your being is to be given to him in love and loyalty. In the historic context of the Shema, what is actually happening What is actually happening in uh, in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is if you follow what's happening in that chapter, it says, listen, this is what God has done for us. He chose us. He sustained us. He delivered us from Egypt. He kept us alive in the wilderness. He's about to put us into the promised land, one we did not make, one we did not cultivate, one we did not plant. He's going to kick our enemies out from us. He's going to tie our hands behind our backs to make sure we know that he's the one doing it. And this is the response that he wants from us. Love him supremely. Every emotion and desire that flows from our hearts is for God and his glory. Every passion that flows from our soul is for God and his glory. Every thought or intention that comes out of our mind is for God and his glory. Every ounce of physical energy that we have is to be spent on his kingdom his fame, his renown. And while I'm at it, let me just add Leviticus 19, 18 on that. Love your neighbor as yourself. That little word as will get you. I want you to think about that little word right there. That's that's called a particle of comparison. This is what he's saying. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Love your neighbor as though you're loving yourself. Love your neighbor as well as. You love yourself. Simple, not easy. Jesus is saying you want to get in? You want to earn your righteousness? You want to bring your record to the table? I'm going to need to know that every ounce, every fiber of your being has been for God and his kingdom and his glory and his fame. And I'm going to need to know that every time You ran into someone. Your thought was to love them as well as you've been loving yourself. I've been thinking about this, love your neighbor as well as yourself. I've been repenting a lot as I think about this, love your neighbor as well as yourself. I think in my life into my disciplines, I think, you know what I should probably do with the poor people in my life? I should probably meet their needs. And I kind of bifurcate needs and wants. I kind of split up. Oh, they need that to exist, but, but this is just fluff on the top. And so what I do for myself is, in loving myself, I, I love myself and my family's needs, and I Try and provide for our wants. But when I come up to you and you don't have your needs or your wants, I'm just going to give you your needs. And Jesus said, well, well, if you want to bring righteousness to the table. If you want to enter into the new heavens and the new earth, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, and your question is Luke chapter 10, what do I have to do to inherit it? This is what I want you to do. As well as. I mean, the Bible, sometimes we read this and we think, ooh, this is a command for us to love ourselves. See, it's assumed in there. Jesus wants us to love ourselves. Let me just tell you right here, the Bible nowhere commands that you and I should love ourselves. In fact, the definition of sin in the Bible is love of self. And so what this command assumes is that as sinners who love to love themselves, we should take that creativity, that passion, that ingenuity, that resourcefulness and turn it for the benefit of other people's needs. You see, the gospel is this. It's not that we love ourselves, but that we're so graciously, generously, and abundantly loved by God. Loving ourselves is not even a part of the equation because we're so well loved by him. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be loved or have dignity or honor as human beings. I'm just saying the gospel takes care of that. This is not a command to love yourself. It's a command to take the resourcefulness of how you take care of your own needs and meet the needs of others. And all the 613 flow from these two. Love God supremely and love neighbor equally. I was thinking about the small things. What might it mean for me to love my neighbor equally? And in case you're wondering of who your neighbor is in Luke 10, that's exactly what the lawyer's wondering. He's like, holy cow, it says, He desired to justify himself. And so his next question is to Jesus, well, then who's my neighbor? And Jesus responds with the very famous, well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, your neighbor is your worst and most distant enemy and everyone in between. Spouses, children, roommates, in-laws, employees, employers, city officials, city trash collectors, the person I'll negotiate with this week in business, the person I'll buy a car from next week. I always wondered why we, mind. The person from my past who has betrayed me, everyone. Thinking about the small things on Friday night at the mall. I took our children to the mall. They love to go to the mall. Millennia, there's that circular place in the middle of the food court with a bouncy floor and they love to run around. They amuse themselves for hours on end and it's good for me because I just get to sit and watch them. But me and a woman came to the line at Chick-fil-A at the same time, and she is carrying a child and has one in tow. I'm like, okay, I think I'd like to go first, so maybe I'm supposed to let her go first. And then my kids didn't want Chick-fil-A, so I would already bought them what they wanted from the person who gave them a sample. So, like, you know what, if I wanted that, that's probably what I'd like to have. So I guess to love them as well as I'd love myself is to get them that. So... I'm getting my Chick-fil-A. The lady orders this food, not just for her and the two she has with her, but for a whole family. Like idiots that have five children. And um, <laughs> like you know, Trisha was there. There's a guy behind her who said he believed in Jesus, who was a pastor. I'd want him to carry those trays for her. So, with a long line behind me, I grabbed the trays, I take them to her table. She was a little freaked out by the weird guy behind her grabbing her trays. I go and and get back in the back of the line. Finally get my food. I sit down. My kids are sitting there. All because of this sermon. All because of this text. Um, We don't like this food that you got us very much. (laughs) And your Chick-fil-A looks amazing. I'd like to have Chick-fil-A, Daddy. So I'm eating cold orange honey chicken from a place I don't even like. And I'm giving my children what I would want. Those are the little things. And then I started thinking about the big things. I was in uh, a previous city talking to a previous friend who's still a friend, and they were talking about buying another car. I say another on purpose. And I said to this friend who was a very religious person, I said to them, Well, you know, I just, the only struggle I have with you and you buying another car is the fact that. We've got our friend over here who who has given his life to little kids in impoverished neighborhoods and trying to tutor them. And he's already talked about their need for a van within the last 48 hours. And we've been talking, and we're all friends here. And I was just wondering, how are you going to go get that next car when those little kids need a van? And this older gentleman looked at me and scoffed. Oh, Ted. Ted you can't think of Sam while you're trying to buy another car. You'll never buy it. And I said, exactly. This is what God wants out of us. I said it's profound simplicity. And I think it's profound for at least several reasons. Because of time, I'll just give you the last one. I want us to see the biblical connection between loving God and loving neighbor. Listen to this. A wholehearted love for God necessarily finds its expression in a selfless concern for another man. Love of neighbor is the logical and natural outgrowth of a love for God. They go together. They can't be separated. Jesus says, I give you these two commandments and they're greater than any one command. Nowhere in the Old Testament are these two put together. This is radically new. And Jesus is saying you don't get to grade your own work on love for God. Your love for God will be expressed in sacrificial, equal love for other men, or you don't have love for God. Don't think I'm right about this? Loving God is the prerequisite to loving your neighbor, but loving neighbor is proof that you have love for God. John 21. Three times, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? So the divine says to the human, do you love me? And his response all three times is, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And what does he say to him? Oh, good. Let's have some fuzzy prayer times together. No, he says, feed my sheep. Second time, tend my lambs. Third time, feed my sheep. In Galatians five fourteen, you know what Paul says? He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And you would think if you had to pick between these two, love God or love neighbor, he's got to go with love God because it comes first and because it's supreme. And no, but you know what Paul says? He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in James chapter 2, James says there's something called a royal law. If he's going to pick between the two, he's going to, of course, I'm sure pick love God because that's most important. You just got to start with a good quiet time. No, this is the royal law. Love your neighbor as well as you love yourself. In 1 John 4, listen to what John says. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. I said it would be simple, but not easy. I said Jesus would provide a simple answer to the first question. But I didn't say he would provide an answer that would be even possible for us. You want to inherit eternal life? That's what the the, the lawyer says in Luke. He says, I'm motivated to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, oh, if you want to inherit eternal life, just do this. Just love God and love neighbor. And you can have it. It's all yours. Let's pick up in verse 32 and see what it means to be being much more and not not far. I, I hope we're overwhelmed. I hope we're confused. I hope we see the impossibility of it. I hope you're saying, I can't do it. I think that's exactly where Jesus wanted to put the scribe. Listen to this. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. Again, same word for well in the first verse. You are beautiful, teacher. He goes on and he basically says the same thing Jesus said. He cuts out one of the words. He says, heart, understanding, and strength. Cuts out soul. He has another thing he cuts out. He won't say God's name. Because in Judaism at this time. Good Jews wouldn't even say his name. Because they were afraid to say his name. If they didn't say it with enough honor. They would be violating the third commandment. So he says he, him, and him. But then he adds one thing. He adds one thing. And if you look down at what Jesus says. Jesus says he answers wisely. Or brilliantly. Or intelligently. This is what he says. He says. That's in addition to what Jesus taught, that Jesus enjoyed. Loving God and loving neighbor, verse 33, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You know what he just said there? He said, what you commanded in the first commandment is much more than what I've been doing. What you just commanded in the first and second commandment is a long distance between where I am at and where I'll have to be. Jesus, he says to Jesus, as they stand in the temple with people walking by with whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, he says to Jesus, what you're teaching is a lot more than what we're doing. He's basically saying, I'm a country mile from where I need to be to inherit the kingdom of God. See, the Sanhedrin used to say the most important commandment is the one about the sacrifice. Because if you'll come here at the three major feasts of the year, you can offer a sacrifice for all those sins you committed in the past. So the most important is actually sacrifice. It's animal sacrifices that we're going to sell you at a slight upcharge. You see, that's a little self-serving. Basically, what they were promoting is do whatever you want all year and just come here and sacrifice. And the Sanhedrin says, even if if we go to having all whole burnt offerings and all sacrifices, what you're teaching as a record of righteousness is much more than what we're doing. Look at what Jesus says. I love this. He says you dang right you are. You're missing it really bad. He doesn't say, you got some work to do. You're so far away. The scribe says, we're far away from what you're teaching. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Did you get that? The scribe essentially repented. He essentially said, man, all this religious stuff we've been doing... Even if we were to do it exactly how the Old Testament tells us to do it, it still would not be enough because we can't bring an animal and have it sacrificed for the human stain. And not only that, if the animal is spotless in its fur and its bones, it is not spotless in its righteous love for God and neighbor. And so even if we were to put our guilt on the animal, the animal cannot give us back its righteousness and help us with our dilemma. See, the scribe is at the end of his religion, and Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. There's another thing that I find extremely fascinating about this text. Is that the word not far, except for one time in Ephesians, is used throughout the entire New Testament as a word that actually means distance and dirt. It does not mean spiritually. It does not mean ideologically. It doesn't mean... You're not far from figuring out that math equation. It's literally, you're not standing that far from the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, I'm the kingdom of God. And while you find yourself to be a long distance from gaining it on your own, you're not far from the one who will give it to you at the cross. And Jesus answered him in his desire to inherit the kingdom of God with an impossibility for him, but the only thing that could possibly put him in the presence of God, which is a righteous, full, beautiful, selfless record. And when Jesus says, you're not far, he doesn't close the gap. He doesn't say, and this is, this is how you can get there. Because no matter what he tells him next is not going to be enough. The only thing that will work is to show him. He says you're not far and then he makes him wait and I wonder if a week later John tells us that multiple of the Sanhedrin became believers. I'm wondering if this describes one of them when he woke up to recite the Shema. I wonder if it hit him. I'm so far from this. But the one who died on the cross who now 500 people are saying has been raised from the dead he was this. I mean, you'll never find someone who lives a more beautiful life than Jesus. I mean, talk about loving God supremely and loving us as well as himself. He had all glory. He goes through shame so we can have glory. He has all wealth. He goes through poverty so we can have wealth. He has all pleasure at the right hand of God and he goes through pain so we can have pleasure. You'll never find in anyone but Jesus loving God supremely and loving neighbor equally. And at the cross, he takes our record of, I'm a long ways away from that. And he gives us his. So it's not just seeing our sin that makes us part of the kingdom of God. That makes us not far. Entrance into the kingdom of God is believing that he was enough for us. And that he died for us. And that he lives in us. And as he does that, he'll help us to love God supremely and neighbor equally. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this text and we thank you for yet another way where you loved your neighbor. The scribe had evil intentions for you and you loved him. We thank you for how you go to die on the cross for your enemy. We thank you for how your worst and most distant enemy is treated with love in your life. And we thank you for that record that's been given to us in the gospel. I pray that you would help us to understand it, to believe it, to be grateful for it, to live out of it, to be propelled into your word, to do, into your world, to do good deeds because of what you've given us in the gospel. In the name we pray. Amen.